3: One of the biggest news stories of the year, of the century, was the January 6th attack on our Capitol and the congressional investigation that followed. There were 10 public hearings in which the committee presented damning evidence showing that former President Trump not only riled up the crowd, but then sat back and watched as a violent crowd tried to steal an election. It was dramatic, and it was revelatory, and it was hugely compelling. But... We now know, thanks to polling conducted by Monmouth University, that those January 6 hearings did not shift public opinion at all. About the same number of people would call it a riot. About the same amount of people would call it legitimate protest. In every way Monmouth polled, the numbers were basically the same before and after the January 6th hearings. Now, there are a lot of reasons why that might be the case, but a huge one, a reason that cannot be ignored, is this one. Fox News didn't cover the hearings. Every other major network did. Fox News ignored the January 6th committee hearings entirely. And not only did they ignore those hearings, but they actively pumped out content like this.
0: If it wasn't an insurrection, then what was it?
3: Special operations uses the military deception tactic of a false flag abroad against the enemies of America. A false flag is any time you want to frame another group so that you can then take action against that group. It is my opinion that false flags have happened in this country, one of which may have been January 6th. Fox literally produced a three-part documentary special, essentially painting the attack on the Capitol as a false flag operation by the left, despite no actual evidence that that was the case. Is it surprising, then, that so many millions of Americans still don't believe that President Trump was directly responsible for an insurrection? And then there's this, one of the other biggest news stories of the century, the COVID-19 pandemic. We now know quantifiably that more Republicans have died from COVID than Democrats. According to the Pew Research Center, the covid death rate in all counties Biden won was two hundred and fifty eight people per two hundred per one hundred thousand in counties that Trump won. It was three hundred and twenty six people per one hundred thousand. Obviously, there are a lot of factors there, QAnon and social media and general distrust, distrust of the government. But this certainly did not help.
4: Hydroxychloroquine. You'd never heard of hydroxychloroquine before we mentioned it. I believe our focus on this
0: drug has led directly to FDA emergency approval, which may save many lives, Tucker.
5: Chloroquine? Talk to me.
0: We're talking about hydroxychloroquine.
5: Hydroxychloroquine.
0: Hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine.
5: Hydroxychloroquine.
0: Hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine.
3: Hydroxychloroquine, of course, does not treat COVID-19. If you have a horse with worms, that's definitely what you want. But it is definitely not recommended for COVID. Fox News has been lying in ways that have materially shaped our political reality for years. 76% of Republicans believe there is an invasion taking place at our southern border. Only 5% of Republicans view climate change as a top issue facing our country. And maybe most importantly for the future of our democracy, 61% of Republicans still believe that Biden didn't legitimately win the 2020 election. 61%
0: dominion came under heavy fire after allegations that their machines caused thousands of votes in one michigan county to be switched from donald trump to joe biden the now, we've
6: president seen willful I, blindness they have adopted a position of yeah. willful blindness to this massive corruption across the country and the smartmatic hmm. software is in the dna of every vote tabulating company's software and system
2: Yes, and it is, uh, it is more
5: than just a willful blindness. Uh, this is people trying to blind us to what is going on. And the president's lawyers alleging that American votes in a presidential election are actually counted in a foreign country. These are serious allegations. But the media has no interest in any of this. But you and I do. You and
3: I do. Media Matters counted 774 statements made by Fox News in the two weeks after the 2020 election was decided, ones claiming that the election was stolen. In that quarter, Fox News' parent company reported more than $4 billion in revenue. Their CEO, Lachlan Murdoch, commented at the time, Fox News experienced record highs in the December quarter. Those 774 false statements about a stolen election? Great for business. So, how do we as a society fix this? How do we stop lies from infecting our political discourse when lying is quite literally profitable? For that, I think we should look to the recent history of another one of our nation's most prolific and serial liars.
2: Sandy Hook, it's got inside job written all over it. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. All I know is. The official story of Sandy Hook has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. For a decade, the
3: far-right conspiracy theorist slash media personality Alex Jones has been saying that the Sandy Hook massacre did not actually happen. 26 people died in that Connecticut school shooting in 2012. 20 of them were first graders. Jones's lies were ridiculous. They were outlandish. They were hurtful. But he had a platform and people believed him. And those people made the lives of those Sandy Hook parents, parents who had already lost their children in a tragedy. Those people who listened to Alex Jones made the Sandy Hook parents' lives an absolute hell. So the parents sued. And this fall, in two defamation and damages suits, those parents won more than a billion dollars in damages from Mr. Jones. It is not a silver bullet. It may not be enough to take Jones's media empire even off the air but it will certainly hurt. And it might make Alec Jones pause before he spins another web of very dangerous deception. Now, today, Fox Fox News chairman Rupert Murdoch was questioned under oath in a $1.6 billion defamation case. The lawsuit is between a voting machine company called Dominion and Fox News. Dominion alleges that Fox knowingly lied, pushing a conspiracy theory that Dominion's perfectly fine voting machines were somehow flipping votes from Trump to Biden. And the key word here is knowingly. Dominion has to prove that not only was Fox News lying, but that Fox News knew it was lying. And on that front, even before Rupert Murdoch's deposition today, it sort of seems like Dominion may have Fox dead to rights. Let's watch that Sean Hannity clip one more time.
0: Dominion came under heavy fire after allegations that their machines caused thousands of votes in one Michigan county to be switched from Donald Trump to Joe Biden.
3: That is what Fox News host Sean Hannity was saying on his very popular national television show after the election. Here is what Sean Hannity said about the Dominion voting machine conspiracy theory in his deposition under oath as part of this lawsuit. Quote, I did not believe it for one second. The New York Times reported that back in December, a lawyer for Dominion said that not a single Fox witness so far had produced anything supporting the various false claims about Dominion that were uttered repeatedly on the network. The lawyer continued, many of the highest ranking Fox people, including Tucker Carlson and the executive who oversees primetime news, many of the highest ranking Fox people have admitted under oath that they never believed the Dominion lies. All of those depositions are still under seal. Both sides in that case, Fox and Dominion, have requested to skip a trial entirely and just have the judge decide based on the facts they have already presented. So we might never see those depositions. But there is, there remains a very real possibility here that Fox News could finally be paying a lot for its lies. Joining us now are Jeremy Peters, New York Times media reporter and an MSNBC contributor, and David Plouffe, former White House senior advisor under President Obama. Thank you guys both for being here with me as we try and unpack what I think has been one of the most dangerous forces in American politics, the, the rise and rise of Fox News. Jeremy, where does this lawsuit stand? Just from that Sean Hannity quote that he's saying boldly, I did not believe those lies. I mean, how does Dominion's case stand as you see it?
7: It's one of the strongest defamation lawsuits that First Amendment scholars will tell you has ever been compiled against a major media organization. It's, it's an extraordinary case. Uh, because you don't, as you laid out perfectly well, Fox is an extraordinarily powerful entity. It's, it's a cultural force as well as a political force as well as a media force. And it's, it's an identity to the people who watch it. And so to have them uh, uh, potentially on the hook for lying to their audience, which has been fairly well documented, but not yet tried mm-hmm. in in a court of law, is it's it, it, this is so far along, Alex, that we have never seen a case get this far against a major media company in a very, very long time. The, so,
3: yeah, and this is I mean, the fact that Rupert Mur- Murdoch exactly. himself is sitting for a deposition is meaningful, it would seem. It seems like there is a case to be made that he was calling the shots here, that he knew these lies were going to be broadcast And indeed, he wanted them
7: to be. It's so meaningful that typically you would see companies like Fox settling these cases before the chairman is ever deposed. The fact that he sat for two days of depositions tells you how far along this case is and what kind of evidence Dominion has amassed against Fox. To to give you an idea of, of, of how serious it is. Sean Hannity has been back for two depositions. The first one wasn't enough. Dominion uncovered more evidence of his possible knowing uh, uh, that, that they were spreading falsehoods on the air. Jeanine Pirro also has been back for a second deposition. Uh, Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, was also called back for a second deposition, but ultimately that didn't happen. So over the course of this case, Dominion has uncovered more and more text messages and emails showing that people at Fox knew what they were putting on the air probably wasn't true, but did so anyway. And that's the kind of evidence that a jury will look at and ultimately decide, if they should pay 1.6 billion dollars.
3: David, from a political perspective, exp- I mean as someone who <laughs> knows well what it is like to be on a presidential campaign and what work goes into being in a White House and how important information is in this landscape, what what is the meaning of Fox News to someone who works in democratic politics?
6: Well, Alex, I'm not sure there's been anything more dangerous or, uh, you know, devastating to American democracy, the fight against climate change, and Fox News over the last 30 years. And in fact, Rupert Murdoch uh, has kind of reigned terror and devastation on three continents. So it's an enormously important, it's not just who wins or loses a certain election cycle. Uh, Over a course of decades now, uh, Fox and Rupert Murdoch uh, here in the United States and in Australia and the UK have really done tremendous damage. I do think there's already been an effect though. So if you look at the 2022 election, which I think by any reasonable measure was a disaster for Republicans, even though they narrowly won the House, you didn't see the same, you know, other than Kerry Lake, and I think Fox was careful about how they covered that, you didn't see the the same playbook that you saw in 20. And I think in part, uh, it's because the lawyers are concerned about these cases. Uh, And so, you know, I think there was a brushback pitch. Now, ultimately, if they have to pay big damages here, this could be an important part of securing democracy, because without Fox—and, of course, Fox is like the Pied Piper. The Sinclair stations, other online outlets, they all follow, right? So, if Fox is not calling the play that we're going to challenge the election and say it was stolen, then I think there's less oxygen. Uh, So, this could not be more important to, I think, the really still ripe question of whether we're going to remain a democracy.
3: Yeah. And to to follow on that, David, I mean, I think a lot of people will say, oh, it's not just Fox. It's not all laid at Fox's doorstep, which is absolutely accurate. There are number there is the internet. There are spin-off conservative media networks that are loosely based in fact, if fact at all. But the, the, the reality is that, you know, Fox has a seat at the White House briefing room. Fox is still seen by much of the country as a mainstream news outlet. It is on in airports. It is on in sports bars. It is on in hotels. And that is very different than One American News Network and its other related spin-offs. That's very different from even the Alex Jones hour of uh, whatever you want to call it. And I think, you know, When you are in when you are in a White House, when you are trying to get a message across, having getting Fox News to carry your news, your information is critical to reaching a part of the country, isn't it? Is it not?
6: Oh, there's no question. You know, Alex, like you, I've studied this very carefully. So Fox obviously has its original audience. It's obviously got then uh, even a bigger audience when people share that content across their social media networks. But Fox is the coach. Okay. So when Fox latches onto a storyline, to a narrative, that trickles down. So whether it's OAN or Breitbart or the Sinclair stations or talk radio, uh, they're going to follow. So when when Fox says this is what we're going to do, gang, that's what they do. So it's an entire ecosystem of disinformation that they control. Uh, and we've really seen nothing like it in America, uh, certainly uh, in terms of its import. Uh, and those numbers you showed were really important, which is they haven't you know, declined that much. What I guess you take as a positive in terms of people's reaction to January 6th. Uh, but there's no doubt the Fox effect has, has sort of kept a ceiling on that. Unfortunately, you'd like to see those numbers creeping up to 70, 80 percent in terms of people correct talking about what January 6th was. So uh, you're absolutely right. You can't just look at Fox. They are at the top of the pyramid uh, and they basically all the sewage flows down from them and gets picked up by other outlets.
3: Jeremy, you were nodding your head in agreement when David was talking about a more cautious approach on Fox to the 2020 elections and election denialism. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that head nodding? Do you oh, think yeah. that they're trying to th- th- this lawsuit is having a, a chilling effect on the otherwise uncensored uh, uh, spouting of lies?
7: Well, let's not forget where this whole episode started. Right. Fox actually did the right thing and told its audience the truth on election night in 2020, which is that Joe Biden won Arizona. That truth, however, was incredibly inconvenient for Fox's profitability. Their ratings fell off a cliff. And in order to sustain those ratings, what Dominion is arguing and what we presume they have uncovered in the discovery process of this lawsuit is that many Fox hosts and executives said, we need to shift the storyline here and talk about fraud because that's what Trump is talking about. So what ended up happening was they've you know they're now overcorrecting for that initial th- th- those falsehoods that they allowed Rudy Giuliani, they allowed Cindy Powell, all these people to come on the air and say just like completely irrational phony things. And now if you look at how, I mean just look at what happened on election night in 2022 Fox was the slowest to call many races. Initially, they would have been when Rod Ailes was running that network. Fastest. They were the first because they knew that that was what their audience wanted. Now they're not so sure. They were very careful. They were the slowest to call the House of Representatives uh, for, for Republicans or to, uh, rather the Senate for the Democrats, uh, because that was not exactly what their audience, the audience wanted.
3: wanted. Uh, one more to you, David, in terms of you know, the the deleterious effect Fox has beyond the misinformation and the disinformation, the active spreading of lies. There is a tendency to champion autocrats. (laughs) Tucker Carlson took his show to Hungary and interviewed Viktor Orban. There are more subtle and uh, and perfectly legal ways in which they champion forces that are decidedly anti-democratic. And my question to you is, as long as that sort of the, that strain of politics politics is successful, um, and it keeps on being something that Fox can legally do, what recourse is there for uh, the rest of the country?
6: It's a great question, Alex. So yeah, I think not the entire network, and certainly not 24 hours a day, but certainly some of their evening hours, you, you do feel like some of those personalities would love to be state-sponsored media in an autocratic regime. Um, they, they not just, uh, they admire some of these other leaders in these other systems. So I think what it's going to take uh, is in primaries, the Republican presidential primary being the big one in front of us, but over the next two two election cycles, let's say, you see more Republicans uh, for Congress, for governor, for secretary of state, for president, being able to win uh, without embracing basically this anti-democracy, pro-autocracy, you know, argument. Uh, Now, that's hard to do when the biggest megaphone (laughs) continues to shout that from the rooftop uh, that in fact, there's something to admire about autocracies that our democracy is deeply flawed. You know, that, that things like replacement theory, it's almost like the white power hour sometimes uh, on that network. That's a big concern, but I've always believed that's what it's going to take. I will feel certainly better about, you know, our democracy when you begin to see more Republicans who basically are deeply conservative, <laughs> don't agree with Democrats on hardly any issues, but basically are more institutionalist win. That may seem like a fairy tale, but I do think you may see some Republican primary voters this time, and certainly in 26, say, hey, the other crowd's not doing too well in general elections. And it doesn't take that many voters to change that. But that's what it's going to take, because I don't think Fox is going to change their tune at all.
3: The people will have to lead. The network to the truth. New York Times media reporter Jeremy Peters and former White House senior advisor under President Obama, David Plouffe, thank you guys both for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. We have much more ahead this hour. Remember back in 2015 when evangelical leaders laid their hands on Donald Trump and prayed for him to be elected president? This time it looks like some of them are now taking a hands-off approach. Yes, that is a pun. Also, as the right wing celebrates the success of its decades-long campaign to take away a fundamental right, the left is now employing a brand new legal strategy to fight back. That's next.
0: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
1: I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there.
2: Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak.
0: Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.
3: Today, anti-abortion advocates held their first March for Life since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. And this year's march also marks the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, creating a sort of bookend for the now defunct landmark ruling. Leaders of the annual march have framed this moment as a time to reflect upon the Dobbs decision as a critical milestone and a time to look forward to the next steps. And participants were adamant about one message in particular. We are not done. After fighting for half a century to dismantle the protections Roe provided, anti-choice activists successfully won a Supreme Court ruling ending a woman's right to choose. And they are now saying that they want to do more to restrict access to reproductive health care. Already, since the Dobbs decision, about 20 states have passed total bans or pre-viability bans on abortion. Courts are currently blocking those laws in several states. In some states, though, even though there is no ban in force, there is still no access to abortion because no clinics are operating. If you think we are living in a post-Roe, balkanized landscape, you might be right. But what will it mean for American life if those fissures deepen? Anti-abortion advocates would like to see a federal ban like the one Senator Lindsey Graham introduced in September. In the context of a post-Roe America and an uncertain national landscape, pro-choice groups are finding new ways to try and reverse some of the damage done by the Dobbs decision. This week, a group of religious leaders filed a religious freedom lawsuit opposing Missouri's abortion ban. The groups claim that lawmakers who invoked their own religious beliefs while drafting the bill, that they violated religious freedom provisions in the state constitution. For 50 years, the anti-abortion movement has been finding creative ways to stifle access to the medical procedure. And now the other side is fighting back with its own very novel strategy. Joining us now is Nancy North, our president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Nancy, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Uh, it's hard. It's a hard uh, day to think about, Roe. Um, I think it's probably always a hard day, but especially um, in the context of the last year. Uh, the Missouri lawsuit is different. And people seem to be very excited about the possibility of this in terms of clawing some rights back for women who've lost, lost an essential freedom. How do you see the lawsuit?
5: Well, before we talk about the Missouri lawsuit, let's just start because we are at this precipice of the Roe anniversary with the fact that this is the first time in 50 years where women do not have the right to make decisions in 12 states where abortion is totally banned under threat of criminal prosecution. And so I'm sitting here at this Roe anniversary thinking about some things that are quite chilling, Mm -hmm. which we have to pay attention to, but some things that are in fact heartening. And I think the lawsuit filed in Missouri is one of those things. We are seeing states find protections for reproductive rights that didn't exist before. So I think it's an interesting lawsuit. They are suing under the state constitution, Mm -hmm. which is what we've been doing in a lot of places across the country. And they're saying that Missouri basically has established... Uh, religion and that the state constitutions bar against establishing religion means that their abortion ban must fall.
3: It's religious leaders saying you are right. you are bringing religion into the state where none should exist, basically arguing separation of church and state. That's right. What about the national ban? I mean, when Lindsey Graham first proposed it, it, it w- was met with um, the room was not that uh Filled with applause, shall we say. Uh, other Republicans thought that it was best decided on the state level, including a Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell.
5: Do you think there is a chance that Republicans actually move forward with this in Congress? Oh, I would not underestimate anything that might happen with respect to a, a national ban. I mean, the thing that is chilling uh, that is on my mind is the fact that this is not the end. They've made it clear that it's mm-hmm. not the end. A nationwide ban is what they are going for. And one of the ways, yes, introducing in Congress, they don't have the votes there right now. The president would veto anything. But there's trying to block access to Medicaid, uh, to medical abortion across the country. So a lawsuit was filed in Texas, which seeks to reverse the decision that the FDA made in 2000, approving medication abortion. That's the abortion pills. uh, And they want to try to ban that nationwide, which would mean in California, in New York. And medication abortion is the way that More than half the women get their abortions in America today.
3: I was going to ask, that that seems to be the procedure that many women, especially in states where there is no access to reproductive choice, that is how they are exerting their own bodily autonomy. Do you have a
5: sense of the increase in in medication abortions in a post-Dobbs landscape? Well, I think we don't have all the numbers yet. It was already more than half before the Dobbs decision, and in states where there isn't access to abortion. And people without the means to get out of the state have to take care of themselves in the state. So I think we're going to get the data on what's happening, but the attempts to try to block medication abortion nationwide should be attended to. And that lawsuit is going on right now in the state of Texas. I just wonder, I mean, you know, I I put nothing past the House Republican
3: caucus, but the fact that they started off the Congress with abortion measures that were not federal bans, they were inventions for problems that don't exist, but they had the word abortion in them. And it seemed like they were trying to placate the hardliners in the pro-life movement. Is there anything that can be done short of uh, a cold bucket of water at the polls that you think could dissuade Republicans in the House from trying to move
5: forward on a federal ban? Well, I mean, I think we are beginning to see how much the fact that the voters have been so clear. We've always known that the vast majority of Americans support the right to access abortion care. And we saw it at the polls, of course, again and again, since Dobbs was overturned. We saw it in Kansas. We saw it in Kentucky. We saw it in Michigan. We saw it throughout the country. And so I think that is going to have some mitigating effect. But the reality is we need to get the rights back. And that's what we're working so hard on in these strategies to get state constitutions to recognize the right to reproductive autonomy, and we have that now in Michigan, California, and Vermont, that language didn't exist before in any constitution. Reproductive autonomy and reproductive freedom is now the language in those states' constitutions, and also doing it through the courts. South Carolina Supreme Court just recently recognized the right to abortion in South Carolina under its constitution and its right to privacy. So two steps backwards and some certain number of steps
3: forward in a sense, because some of these rights have finally been enshrined. They're not zombie laws from the late 1800s and 1930s. That Absolutely. I think
5: in the end of the day, they're going to rue the day that they reverse Roe versus Wade because the rights are going to be stronger.
3: Waking a sleeping giant. Nancy Northrup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights. Thanks so much for joining me tonight, Nancy. Thank you. We have a lot more for you this evening. President Biden hit the halfway point of his presidential term today, and there was cake in the White House. But what was the message written in the icing? Plus, the guy who wants to replace President Biden in the Oval Office is facing some defections in a party he once controlled. Is there such thing as a post-Trump Republican Party?
0: We'll have more on that coming up next.
3: When you're looking at a run for president, you look at two things. You first look at does the current situation push for new leadership? The second question is, am I that person that could be that new leader? Yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader. That was former Trump U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley kind of sort of maybe saying she's running for president, which kind of sort of actually matters because Nikki Haley effectively challenging her former boss who, by the way, is the only announced Republican candidate in 2024. That is evidence that Donald Trump's hold over the GOP may finally be starting to slip. Maybe. Today, both The New York Times and The Washington Post are out with new stories about Trump's growing rift with the evangelical movement that once supported him. That, while an influential Texas-based pastor told The Washington Post this week, the most conservative evangelicals I know are in favor of Ron DeSantis for president. And inside the Republican Party itself, a war has broken out between the current Trump-backed leadership and conservatives looking for a new direction. RNC chair Ronna McDaniel, who has Trump's backing, is currently facing a surprisingly aggressive challenge for her job from a former Trump lawyer who has the backing of diehard conservatives, including Tucker Carlson and Matt Gates. It appears that the coalition Trump cultivated and road to power no longer seems as tethered to him as a 24-24 campaign season gets underway. Joining us now to talk about all this is Tim Miller, writer for The Bulwark and an MSNBC political analyst. Tim, I'm so happy to see you and hear all the answers you have to give me about this most pressing question. It is an age-old question, but it has new urgency. Is Does Donald Trump still command fear within the Republican Party?
2: Hey, Alex. It's just so good to be with you to start. Happy Friday. Um, Yeah, he commands a little bit of fear. Uh, It's mostly fear bottom-up, though, from Trump voters, right? And and so I think that as you see these changes, right, as as you see a little bit of fracturing, Nikki maybe putting her foot in the water, uh, Harmeet Dillon challenging Rana, uh, what you're not seeing from any of these people is a repudiation of Trump. You know, it's more of a commentary about, oh, we love Mr. Trump. (laughs) We love Mr. Trump's voters. We think he did great, but, you know, we might need to move move on in a new direction to help help trying to win. Now that's a meaningful difference from where the party was 6 months ago but it is not a move away from you know the MAGA movement that trump started it's not a move away from the trump voters it's if anything it's kind of it's doubling down on reaching those people i mean look this this rnc chairs race has been ta- taking place on steve bannon's podcast which was the leading podcast of the insurrection stop the steel movement uh ronald mcdaniel was on that today harmeet's been on it a bunch and that's where they're arguing that's those are the people who listen to that is who they're speaking to um you know, none of that is a repudiation of Trump or a sense that people, you know, want to move away from him in any meaningful way. They just might not want him to be the standard bearer.
3: Yeah, I, I think that there's a big distinction to be drawn between Trumpism and MAGAism, which seems very much in full flower, and Trump himself, who seems potentially a little bit bruised uh, since his first entrance onto the national stage, or at least uh, ripe for... um minimization, shall we say. It seems to me that the sort of potential leading contenders for the nomination, and I say that with a big asterisk because I still think Donald Trump is a front runner, have found pieces of Trump's message that they want to co-opt, right? Like Mike Pence is going for religion, which granted wasn't something that Trump necessarily had all these bona fides in, but the evangelical base was with him at the end in 2016. Pence is going for that. Ron DeSantis is going for the culture warrior stuff, whether that's anti-vax or the CRT stuff, all of his stuff on uh, LGBTQ trans community um, marginalization. Nikki Haley is trying to bring us back to the America as a global power, the sort of foreign policy piece that Trump largely um, abdicated on, but was a, a core part of the America First message in its first iteration. Do you think there's one part of this puzzle where Trump is weakest, where he is most, uh, uh, I think, vulnerable to an outsider to come and take the mantle away from him?
2: Yeah, I think he's most vulnerable in two areas. Uh, One is just uh, uh, success efficacy, uh, particularly on things like immigration, right? I think it'd be very easy for someone uh, like a Ron DeSantis to come in and say, hey, look at all the things that we did in Florida. You know, my, the viewers here might be grossed out by many of those uh, policies. The Stop Woke Act, don't be so gay, but I implemented them. I got them done. You said you were going to build the wall and make Mexico pay for it. There's no wall. Mexi- you know, Mexico didn't pay, right? So I think that there's an efficacy argument, particularly in the area of immigration where Trump is vulnerable. And then I think COVID is the other area where he's vulnerable. I, I think it's an open question whether in 2023 that will still be an animating issue but let me tell you Alex I went down to the turning point USA Charlie Kirk's group conference to cover that right before Christmas and and every speaker was talking about attacking the democrats on covid attacking fauci talking about prosecuting fauci and i think trump both on you know operation warp speed which is maybe the best thing he did uh speeding up the vaccine and and on it you was know, kind of going along with um with some of the lockdowns and some of the COVID mitigation efforts, I think that in, a, in a, this might seem like we're in the upside down, that that's where he would be vulnerable, but that is might be where he's the most vulnerable, as, as that he could get kind of positioned as, oh, you went in with the establishment, with the medical staff and <laughs> the elites when Ron DeSantis, for example, zag the other direction and listened to the people and what the wow. magazine wanted.
3: Wow. The, from the man who was advocating a hydroxychloroquine, he's now too mainstream for the GOP. Um, Trump's rift with the evangelicals seems to be born over his suggestion—and I think this is not incorrect—that abortion was not a great issue for Republican candidates in the 2022 midterms. Evangelicals do not like hearing that. They would like to press for a national ban. Uh, they are very, very pro-life in an absolutist sense of the word— At the end of the day, evangelicals don't like Trump, but they abide him. Is there any chance that they do something differently than they did in 2016? He wasn't their chosen candidate, but they eventually circled up and got on board. Do you think something different happens in 2024 if Trump is close to being the nominee?
2: Maybe I think it's all I want to wait until we hear a little bit more from the actual voters. Look what happened in 2016 when I was working for Jeb. We saw this. The evangelical elites, with the exception of Jerry Falwell Jr., um we're against Trump right but the you're you're sort of culturally evangelical person maybe not somebody that's like a, a multiple times weekly church goer but someone that identifies as evangelical uh, they were Trump's core base right it was the you know it was the uh, most I think religious like the top top most religious voters that were looking at Ted Cruz and some of the other candidates right and so that that breakdown might happen again this time right where the elites are saying oh we want to move on to somebody that we can trust more you know this was we made this deal with the devil. We got our Supreme Court seat. Now it's time to move on. But where the rank and file still want to stick by their man. I I think that that kind of remains to be seen.
3: Tim Miller always has the answers. Writer for The Bulwark and MSNBC political analyst. Buddy, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time tonight.
2: You too, Alex.
3: Coming up, President Biden's second anniversary in office. A lot of things have happened since January 20th, 2021. The New York Times chief White House correspondent Peter Baker joins us next. Stay with us.
7: Today is two years since I was sworn in as president, and
2: uh, with your help, with your help, we've gotten a lot done.
3: That was President Biden this afternoon commemorating the two-year anniversary of his inauguration and touting his administration's accomplishments, like the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years and historic job growth. In the first two months of his presidency, while COVID raged across the country, Biden signed into law the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. This summer, the administration passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is President Biden's massive and signature bill that invested hundreds of billions of dollars in climate change and health care and fighting inflation and set, it set a corporate minimum tax rate. Biden signed into law the first gun reform the first kind of gun reform legislation we've seen in decades. He also signed into law the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the Respect for Marriage Act. And, of course, President Biden also nominated the first Black woman to the Supreme Court, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. But... As Biden marked his two-year anniversary today, there were storm clouds, storm clouds in the form of the classified documents investigation. Today, the New York Times published a new report on the 68 days between the first discovery of the documents and when the public learned the news. Here it is. The handling of the documents case has eroded his capacity to claim the high road against Mr. Trump, while also raising questions about his team's ability to navigate Republican attacks from Capitol Hill. Joining us now is Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent to the New York Times and one of the reporters bylined on this very piece. Peter, thanks for joining me tonight. Tell me a little bit about how... Uh, complicating uh, the document scandal has been in, in terms of how the White House sees its agenda writ large, because they have accomplished so very much two years of landmark legislation, um, big achievements on a number of fronts. Is this but a passing storm or do they really seriously think this is shaping public opinion?
4: Well, at the White House, they would tell you this is not that big a deal, at least politically. The people outside the Beltway are not going to pay that much attention to it. That's this obsession of us and the media and the political chattering class. That's uh, that's their thinking at the moment. But what it does, I think, is actually sort of let Trump off the mat. And to the extent that they had an opportunity to uh, criticize President Trump over his handling of the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago, Uh, even though the cases are remarkably different in terms of some of the details, they've sort of lost that high ground. That's not gonna be something that you're gonna hear Democrats bringing up against Trump, except to say that there's a distinction between what Trump did and what Biden did, which is not exactly uh, an easy argument to make, even if the facts may be, again, uh, significantly different. So they've lost that opportunity they had. I think that's an important point for them. But, you know, in terms of whether they face any actual threat from the special counsel, nobody wants a special counsel. If you're president, you never know where they can lead. It can be distracting. It can, you know, take people out of their uh, comfort zone. They have to get lawyers. None of that is a good thing for a White House. There's no indication that, that it necessarily will lead to anything serious legally in the sense that so far what we know is, at least according to the information that's come out, is that they responded quickly once they discovered these documents. They gave them back to the archives right away. There's no indication, unlike Trump, that they tried to resist. They didn't defy a subpoena the way Trump seemed to it seems to have done. Uh, and so legally, they may not be in that big a jeopardy. But it's not a good thing, obviously, when you have a special counsel.
3: Uh, Peter... You know, a lot of people have said the Biden White House attitude towards Republicans has been markedly pugnacious, especially given the fact that this was the president who was going to unite the country. He has basically turned a page on that, starting last year when he talked in advance of the uh, midterms about MAGA Republicans and allied them with sort of fascistic actors through history. Do you think the the sort of newly pugnacious White House is evidence of an emboldened White House? Do you think it's a political strategy? I mean, how do you how do you, what do you make of their stance towards Kevin McCarthy, the debacle of a speaker's election, their really firm stance on debt ceiling negotiations? This just feels like a White House that is not pulling any punches as it were.
4: Well, it's not pulling any punches, but I think it's because it sees a lot of punches coming its way, right? I mean, they have a a new Republican House that has made clear that the price of admission for uh, Speaker McCarthy to get into that office was to be as uh, oppositional as possible to the Biden White House, even on things like a debt ceiling and spending uh, bills that are required to keep the government open. In other words, they're not going to be looking for deals. This Republican majority in the House is not interested in finding common ground. And in that sense, the White House is trying to make a distinction between McCarthy on the one side and McConnell on the other, right? In the Senate, Mitch McConnell is obviously not exactly a friend of this White House, but from time to time is willing to to strike bipartisan deals where he sees an advantage in doing so. And you saw President Biden go down to Kentucky standing side by side with Mitch McConnell a week or so ago. Uh, to dedicate the opening uh, or the project of a new uh bridge repair down there to emphasize what bipartisanship can get done in the form of the infrastructure bill that passed uh in 2021. So I think you're going to see them play two different uh strategies here, get oppositional against the Republicans in the House, looking for deals with uh, Republicans in the Senate and see if they can uh make the Republicans their own worst enemy.
3: It's an interesting role for Mitch McConnell to be live trolling his Republican counterpart in the House as he's fighting for his life in a speaker's election. Just a shocking set of visuals. Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. It's always great to see you, Peter. Thanks for your time tonight.
4: Thank you very much.
3: We'll be right back. We have a quick correction. Earlier in the show, we mentioned Fox News pushing hydroxychloroquine as a covid cure, and I called it a horse medication. Unlike Fox News, we wanted to quickly correct the record about the proper use for hydroxychloroquine. It is primarily treating malaria, also rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. It is still not a COVID cure, though. And ivermectin, which Fox News also pushed for those sick with COVID, is a medication that is typically used on horses. It too is still not a legitimate COVID cure. Apologies to all, especially the horses. That does it for us tonight. I'll see you here on Tuesday.
0: If a friend asks how you're doing,